Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah 1. This is the reading of God's word. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a breed of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness. Only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now. Let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old. Your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. 
Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness, but rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as you know, we are currently in a short series we're calling Jesus and Justice. And unless you've been living under a rock, you know that we are in the midst of a significant cultural moment in our nation right now. A moment that has pushed all of us to wrestle with some important issues around race and justice. Issues that sadly have often been ignored in the church. I think many of us would agree that we haven't really been discipled or educated to think through these issues theologically or biblically. So we're basically just relying on our own social media feeds or our friends and family to establish that baseline for us, that baseline for how we're supposed to think through these things. And when we do that, what ends up happening is that our social media feeds just end up becoming our own private echo chambers where we're just consuming thoughts, ideas, and beliefs that coincide with our own, where our goal is ultimately not to be educated or to be challenged or to grow in empathy, but more so to just find posts, videos, and articles that simply confirm or reinforce our existing biases and beliefs. But as believers, we need a different baseline. We need a different starting point. And that starting point has to be the Word of God. Because the Word of God is our only source for absolute truth. You know, I myself am guilty of this, but often the first place I turn to whenever I want to know how to think about these things or when I'm not sure how to engage these difficult conversations is almost never Scripture, even though God has so much to say about issues of justice. And so we're going to stay right here in Isaiah 1 today. And this morning, we're going to focus on the why of justice. If you remember last week, we looked at the what of justice. What does biblical justice look like? And we talked about how God defines justice first as restoration, not retribution. Not just punishment for wrongdoing, but a restoration of persons to relationship. We also talked about how God defines justice as calling, not charity. Not just this optional one-time act of kindness, but a lifelong commitment to give ourselves to those in need. And finally, we talked about how God defines justice as communal, not individual. That it's not just an individual taking responsibility for his or her own personal actions or choices, but a community taking collective responsibility for one another. So if this is what biblical justice looks like, why are we called to do it? And let me start by posing a question to all of you. Why do you believe what you believe? Or put another way, why have you taken the specific stance or position you've taken with regard to these issues around race and justice? I bet many of us have never asked ourselves that question. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, isn't it common sense? Or isn't it just because I'm right? Well, how do you know you're right? Is it because you're more enlightened or more educated? Because there are people around the world who are just as educated as you are who disagree with you. 
You see, if the basis of our commitment to justice is not rooted in Scripture, if it's rooted in our own self-righteousness or in popular opinion, then one of two things will happen. Either one, we will end up shaming those who disagree with our views, or two, we will drop the issue and disengage completely the moment our opinion is no longer popular. But you see, if we're going to be committed to the work of justice for the long haul, then we have to get down to the why as it is given to us in Scripture. And so that's what we're going to do today. What is the biblical basis for justice? Why does justice matter? And we're going to see that justice flows out of three things. And if you're taking notes, these are the three points. The nature of God, the nature of humanity, and the nature of redemption. Okay? The nature of God, the nature of humanity, and the nature of redemption. Let's start with the nature of God. Any discussion about justice must begin with the character and nature of God himself. If you remember from last week in Isaiah 1, God is calling out his people for prioritizing their religious acts, their prayer gatherings, their elaborate worship services, their fasting, their sacrifices, all while neglecting the things that are most important to the heart of God. And he tells us what those things are in verse 17. Seeking justice, defending the oppressed, taking up the cause of the fatherless, pleading the case of the widow. Now what's interesting when you read this passage is that it implies that when we don't do these things, the offense is not primarily to the people we've neglected. The offense is primarily to God himself. Notice in verse 4 it says, Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. It doesn't say they have forsaken the fatherless or the oppressed or the widow. It says they have forsaken the Lord. That their neglect of justice is first and foremost an act of rebellion against God. You know, this week marked one of the most heinous racial killings in U.S. history. When a white supremacist, Dylan Roof, walked into a church in Charleston, South Carolina, and murdered nine worshipers in cold blood. And as I was reading different articles about it this week, I came upon one that talked about Dylan Roof's mother, who apparently had a heart attack during the trial as she watched survivors of the shooting one at a time address her son. And there was someone sitting behind her in the courtroom who reported that throughout the trial, this mother kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And it was as though this mother understood that what her son had done was ultimately a reflection of her. You see, in the same way, when we act unjustly, our actions misrepresent a God who is in his very nature just. In Isaiah 30, God refers to himself as a God of justice. Isaiah 61 says, For I, the Lord, love justice. Psalm 33 says, The Lord loves righteousness and justice. Justice is who God is. But not only is justice a part of God's character, we see over and over again that God chooses to attach himself to victims of injustice. God chooses to identify with the poor and the weak and the marginalized. You can tell a lot about a person based on who he or she chooses to associate with. 
And this is what separates the God of the Bible from all other gods. Our God doesn't identify with the rich or the strong or the powerful. Our God identifies with the people at the bottom. You see, when God uh, you know, commands his people to take up the cause of the fatherless, to plead the case of the widow, he isn't speaking from a distance. If you remember our call to worship today from Psalm 68, it says, God says, I am the father to the fatherless. I am the husband to the widow. You see, God tethers himself to those who are suffering to the extent that when we turn our backs on them, we turn our backs on him. If you insult my kids, you insult me. If you insult my wife, you insult me. And in the same way, when we forsake the poor and the oppressed and the vulnerable, we forsake God himself. Now we see this theme occur again in the New Testament. In Matthew 25, Jesus is speaking about his second coming. And he says all the nations are going to be gathered in front of him. And then he's going to start to separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep will enter the kingdom and the goats will not. And he says that, you know, they have similar tendencies, similar behaviors, but the shepherd knows the difference. And to the sheep, it says that Jesus will say this, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And Jesus goes on to say, look, on that day, there are going to be a lot of people who come up to me and say things like, wait, when did we see you sick or naked or hungry? I mean, if we saw that you were in need, of course we would have helped. And to that, Jesus gives his famous response, truly I say to you, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Jesus is saying, you may look like, talk like, act like one of my followers, but when you look around and you choose to ignore the injustice that's all around you, when you see an individual or a community crying out for help and you choose not to act, you have not just neglected that individual or community, you have forsaken me. So number one, doing justice flows out of the nature of God. We do justice because God is just and because God chooses to identify with the poor and the oppressed. Number two, the nature of humanity. What do I mean by this? You know, I'm actually really glad that as a church, we just worked through the first four chapters of Genesis because I think the most foundational truth that dictates how we should treat people and how we should understand justice is that all human beings were created in the image of God that all human beings are created with inherent dignity, value, and worth. There is a sacredness in God that is imparted to all of us, regardless of race or culture or socioeconomic status. So when God calls out injustice, he actually calls it out specifically as an attack on the image of God. We see this in Genesis chapter 9 when God says, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. In other words, when people murder other human beings, justice must be served because those human beings are created in the image of God. You know, what's really alarming to me 
is the way that as a society, we've begun to attach conditions to human life that God himself never attaches. Where every time someone is murdered unjustly, we begin to list out reasons for why that person either deserved to live or deserved to die. You know, when the video of George Floyd first surfaced, there were many whose immediate first reactions were, well, let's wait till the whole story comes out. You know what that translates to? Let's wait to see if there's a justifiable reason for why an unarmed black man had to have a knee pressed upon his neck for nine minutes to the point of death. You know what that translates to? Let me be the judge. Let me determine the value of this life. And yet God says that is not yours to determine. Because every human being is created in my image, which means every human being is created with infinite dignity, value, and worth, period. Now, for those of you who are pumping your fists right now saying, Amen, brother, I also need to say this. And this may turn some of you off, but I really need you to hear this. As much as the church needs to name and fight against the evil that is racism and white supremacy. We must also never forget that even white supremacists are created in the image of God. Now, this doesn't mean we condone or support their actions, but what it does mean is that in the same way that we are called to pray for and loose the chains that bind the oppressed, we are also called to pray for and loose the chains that bind the oppressors. We can't just follow Jesus when it's convenient for us. Following Jesus means submitting all of ourselves to him, even when what he tells us to do is hard. And what Jesus calls us to do is love not just those who agree with us, but also to love our enemies, because all are created in the image of God. James 3.9 says, With the same tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the image of God. Trust me, it's very easy right now to curse and hate people who disagree with us, to wish ill will upon them, especially because sometimes it feels like our hate is justified. And yet on the cross, Jesus looked upon his oppressors, the ones who beat him, the ones who mocked him, the ones who put a crown of thorns on his head. And his first thought wasn't, Father, give them what they deserve. No, his first thought was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His first thought wasn't revenge, it was love. Now obviously there's nothing wrong with righteous anger, but I'm afraid that in our anger, we so often give in to the temptation to condemn, to shame, to judge, rather than to ask God for the strength to forgive, to show compassion, and to love our enemies. Which brings us to the final point, the nature of redemption. You see, everything I just said is absolutely impossible to do if we do not truly understand the nature of our own redemption. Because we too were once enemies of God, justly deserving of his wrath and punishment, Romans 5.10. 
well, how, can, how then can we be saved? If God is perfectly just and righteous, then he will always give people what they deserve. I mean, we see this in Isaiah 1, verses 19 to 20. It says this, If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Meaning, if you follow my law, which is perfect, you will be saved. But if you disobey, you will be devoured. Everyone gets what they deserve. Well, if this is true, then this means all of us should be devoured because Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, it's funny. All of us want God to execute his justice until he has to execute it on us. You know, we can't appeal to God's justice without wishing a death sentence on ourselves. We can't say, oh, our God is so just, and then just assume that he's going to overlook all the things we've done, we've said, or we've thought. No, you see, all of us are culpable. All of us have to pay. But this is what God did. Rather than make us pay with our own blood, he paid the ultimate price with his blood. Titus 3, 4-7 says this, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. You see, only on the cross could God be both perfectly just and perfectly merciful. Because on the cross, God poured out his wrath on Jesus, the spotless lamb, the only one who perfectly upheld his image so that you and I, the ones justly deserving of God's wrath and punishment, would be restored and made right. And if we understand that all that we have and all that we are is a gift of God's grace, then the only fitting response for us is to then pour out our lives to bring God's healing and hope to both the oppressed and the oppressor. Now you may be watching the news or browsing social media these days wondering, but is there hope for the oppressed? Is there hope for the oppressor? I mean, I don't see any hope. Because this oppression feels like it runs so deep. It feels like it's too ingrained into the structures and systems woven into the fabric of our society, into our history. I don't know if there's hope. I don't know if there's a law or policy or program that can turn this ship around. And you're right, there isn't. Because sin is a poison that infects all of who we are. It's a poison that infects everything. Isaiah 1.5 describes it perfectly when it says, Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. But friends, this is precisely why Jesus came. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is standing in the synagogue and he opens up the scroll and starts reading from the book of Isaiah chapter 61. And this is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as soon as he reads these words, he rolls up the scroll and he says these words, these words that God once spoke to his people when they thought they were dead in the water, these words were pointing to me. I am the hope of this world. And throughout history, the people of God have often found themselves in Isaiah 1 type predicaments, and they've often had to turn to Jesus as their only source of hope. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was undoubtedly looking to Jesus when he said these words, I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. How could this man have possibly uttered these words in the world in which he lived? It's because he knew that on the cross, Jesus conquered sin and death and evil once and for all, and he understood the heart of true faith, being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see, Hebrews 11. It's what theologians refer to as the tension between the already and not yet, a tension that all believers to some extent must understand. It's this idea that we are already in the kingdom, yet we do not see it in its full glory. You know, as many of you know, this past Friday was Juneteenth. And it was so great to see so much written about it this year. I had a chance to talk to my daughter about it this week. And I can tell you that even as an American history major in college, we very rarely talked about this day. Because it forces us to confront the parts of our history we would rather forget. Now I'm sure by now we all know that Juneteenth marks the day that roughly 250,000 enslaved Texans found out they'd been free for over two years. And as celebratory as this day is, it's also a painful reminder that throughout our history, freedom for our black brothers and sisters has often been delayed. With every step forward, the evil that is racism continues to push back. It tries to hold on for dear life. In some sense, nobody understands the very real tension between the already and not yet better than our black brothers and sisters. But friends, we need to remember this, that sin may be kicking, it may be screaming, but it isn't winning. Remember, we don't fight against injustice to win the war. We fight against injustice because the war has already been won. Brian Stevenson, author, activist, lawyer, says the great enemy of justice is hopelessness. And he's right which is why we need the hope of the gospel now more than ever to remind us that though injustice continues to persist all around us, it will never have the final word. So friends, let's learn to do right. Let's seek justice. Let's take up the cause of the fatherless. Let's plead the case for the widow. Let's engage and let's fight with confidence, knowing the victory is ultimately the Lord's. Let's pray. Gracious God, today we thank you that we do not stand on our own goodness or our own righteousness, but on the solid rock of Jesus. 
On this Father's Day, we weep with the fatherless. For those in our own community and in our nation who are without their dads today, many of them because of the injustice that continues to persist in our nation. May all those who are hurting today be comforted by the hope of the gospel. We thank you that you are good, that you are just, and that you are merciful to those who call upon you. May you be glorified in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.